Hello and welcome back to The Ties That Find. I'm your host, Rachel, and this is a true crime podcast that tells the stories of long investigated mysteries that are solved using forensic genealogy. As a disclaimer, I am in no way affiliated with or sponsored by GEDmatch, Parabon Nanolabs, or the DNA Doe Project. In our first bonus episode, we find an older man deceased in a shed on a fruit orchard where he lived alone for decades. He went by Jerry, but it turns out Jerry isn't his real name. Was he running from something, or was it just that he chose to live the simple life? This is the case of the Mill Creek Shed Man. Hello, hello, and happy weekend. This is a first for us, isn't it? So I'm glad we were able to break the bonus episode seal. Like I said last week, this is um, a special episode to me just because it's um, something I wanted to talk about at some point, but I never was sure when it was going to be a good time to put it in because there is no actual crime that was um, committed in this case, but it is a pretty interesting case. So without further ado, here is the Mill Creek Shed Man. Okay, so we're in 2015, and we zero in on a town called Mill Creek in Washington State. It's about a half an hour outside of Seattle. There's about 19,000 people that live here in 2015, so it's a pretty good-sized town or city, depending on how you look at it. And we're on a property next to North Creek Park. Now, I think it's a county park. There's a few walking trails there, but it's mostly wetlands, but it's got a lot of great reviews. But this particular property that we're looking at is, um, it's privately owned and it has an orchard on it, as well as a house to be, you know, lived in and a few extra outbuildings, some sheds and some other woodsy areas in it. And on January 11th of 2015, two homeless men are walking through these woods on this private property and they notice a shed that's been overgrown and they're curious. So they decide to go investigate the shed. Well, they open the door and they find a whole bunch of empty cans and papers and other kind of like junk and debris. And then they look over and they see like this makeshift mattress with some blankets on top of it. And then lo and behold, underneath the blankets are human remains. So they leave the property and they talk to another friend of theirs and then that friend calls the police and tells them what they found. So the police come to the property and they can't find it right away because it's all overgrown. So they have to get out the people who reported it to come out there with them and then they can eventually find the shed and then they find the remains. And the medical examiner is called, of course, and thus begins our story. Now, our John Doe is wearing dark uh, wool socks. He's got a plaid flannel shirt black t-shirt on. He's got tan pants. And the medical examiner thinks that this is a man. He, and he also thinks that he's been gone for over a year. They believe he's about five foot 10, five foot 11 inches tall, and he's African-American. He has a healed uh, nasal fracture and he's got lumbar scoliosis and arthritis. And they do believe that he must be over 50 years old, maybe as even old as 65 when he passed. But there is no foul play suspected here though. Okay. They don't, they don't know what happened to him exactly. They, they just assume that they, he died of natural causes, but the the body is so decomposed that they're not really sure, but they don't see enough or anything to, to believe that there was any kind of foul play, but they need to know who this person is. So they interview the person that's living there on the main, at the main house on the property. And they find out that there was a guy that was living in that back shed for a while, for a few years, actually, 
but the renter hadn't seen him for a while and maybe he just, they just figured maybe he just up and left one day and moved on. So the, red, the renter hadn't been in the shed for a long time because he just figured he'd let the man keep to himself and there must have been no other reason for the renter to go in there so he didn't want to intrude and he never went back into the shed to investigate. So now police are given the name of Jerry. They said that he, the, whoever this man was, they think that they went by the name of Jerry. Jerry Diggs. That's all the police have to go on. And there's no identifying information in the shed itself. But soon enough, the police starts to think it over and they say, wait, I think we know a guy like that. And they look back on all their old police reports over the last few years, and they actually do find some reports that they had been that, that, that had been written. They were never any criminal reports, but they were just interactions that they had with a man in this area that kind of fits the description. And the names that are coming up on these reports are Jerry Diggs, born in uh, May of 1945, Jerry Deggs, born in December of 1949, and Jeremy Jeremy Diggs, born New Year's Eve in 1950. But aside from not knowing what to do with the remains, what to actually do with them, they also need to notify his family so they can pay their condolences. So they have to keep digging. This, of course, is not good enough. They need to know who this man was. Well, they were able to extract a DNA sample from the remains, and they did send it to CODIS because we know we, it's 2015, so we do have CODIS, um, but there are no hits in CODIS. So at least they know that this man is not a known perpetrator and he's not a known victim that had somehow ended up in the system at some point. So then they try contacting the local social security office to see maybe if this description fits any of their clients, you know, if like for food stamps or unemployment or something, but there's no luck. Well, they think, okay, well, we have these papers and these tin cans. Maybe we can get some fingerprints and do some kind of fingerprint search. Because remember, for the remains themselves, it's been so long, it's been, you know, the remains are so decomposed that they're not able to get any fingerprints off of off of the body itself. So they try to get some fingerprints off of the items that are in the shed. They're able to actually get two fingerprint samples, but there's no match in any missing persons database by the fingerprints. Now, eventually, John Doe will come to be known as the Mill Creek Shed Man. And there are some people from Mill Creek that call in to try to help the police identify him, but nothing ever comes of it. They put an ad in the newspaper a year later in 2016. Some tips come in again, but there's still no leads. In 2017, a local artist, he um, he pulls a Frank Bender, like we saw um, in The Boy Under the Billboard, and he decides he's going to create a sketch based off of the, you know, the texture, not, not the texture, but the you know, just the, the skull, the the what the relief, I guess you could say, right? You know, the bumps and the creases in, in the skull, how he thinks that the man would have looked if he when he was alive. It actually turns out to be a pretty good composite for as far as I could tell. But unfortunately at the time, it doesn't do anything to solve the mystery. Now sometimes toward the end of 2017 and into 2018, the DNA Doe project um, is up and running and they are growing their their caseload and they come across this case. I'm not sure if it was submitted to them or if they somehow found it and they said, you know what, let's take it on. But they're not able to do the testing right away, of course, because remember it costs money. And this is a person who doesn't even have a family. So it's 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 just like we said, it's a DNA Doe case. All of these cases are really because they don't have a family to to pay for the funding to get this type of DNA done. The end result is the family in itself. So volunteers have to pay for it. Police departments have to pay for it. 
In this case, it ended up being fully funded in the spring of 2018, and they move on to the next step, which is getting that that really detailed fine extraction of the mitochondrial DNA from um, from John Doe's bones. He does go by Jerry, so we'll call him Jerry. Um, the DNA Doe Project assigns a volunteer to Jerry's case, and her name is Jenny Lekus, I believe. It's L-E-C-U-S. And she takes on the case, but it's, unfortunately, it's going to be about a year and a half before she's able to really get into any real resolution. She does check all the databases she can, and she does it regularly. She does come up with some Sensi Morgan hits for him, but they are like five generations back every time that she thinks she's on a good path. She can't come to the next step on the family tree to be sure and to be able to determine if she's on the right branch of that family tree. So instead, she just decides she's going to just keep checking GEDmatch every few days or maybe even every day when she, you know, when she can, just to see if maybe a closer relative has uploaded their information into the database. And unfortunately, a year and a half goes by while she's doing this. And this whole time she's thinking about this man, Jerry, from Mill Creek, from the shed. She's thinking, what was he like when he was alive? Does he have a family that actually misses him? What kind of music does he like? What kind of foods did he like? What kind of life experiences did he have? What kind of stories did he have to tell? And how did he get to the shed on that orchard farm in Washington? Well, finally, her patience and daily monitoring does pay off for her at the end of 2019. And Jenny gets on the phone with a woman and says, hey, do you know a guy named Jerry, Jerry Diggs? And the woman says, not Jerry, we had a Terry and he's my cousin's son. And his actual name is Nathaniel. And so on Monday, December 23rd of 2019, the Snohomish County Medical Examiner's Office is able to announce that the Mill Creek Shed Man is actually Nathaniel Terrence Deggs. That is so awesome. What a great feeling it must have been for Jenny, for the police department, for the medical examiner's office, and a shock, I'm sure, to his family. But it's so great to have this kind of case where it's just a person who died of natural causes. We'll find out more about his life in a little bit, but just to bask in the fact that it's a person who's able to be returned to their home, to their family, that has not suffered some kind of horrible, horrendous crime against them. There's no murder in this case. This is just a man who was living a life on his own the way he wanted, we think, maybe. Um, but at least the, no violence came to him. So th just keep in mind that he is one of many, many people that's with the DNA Doe Project and unidentified in other, in other databases where there was no crime. And if there's no crime, there may not be that much motivation from a police department or medical examiner's office to hunt down who this person really was or who this person belonged to. But in this case, at least, we did get some kind of answers. Likas had been checking Jedmatch for the last year and a half, and she's essentially waiting for a closer relative for relative than a fifth generation relative that she was finding. She would try to work the leads that she'd get, but the last names just kept changing from like Davy to Davis. And she couldn't find him in any public records to be sure that she was looking, who she was looking at was the Mill Creek man. And Baltimore didn't have any birth certificates that could even pin down that that's where he, his, his family was from. And her attempts at finding any activity on his social security card wasn't helping either. And it's endearing, but it's sad and, and bittersweet that this whole time his biological family did try to find him. 
They even hired a private investigator, but clearly there was no way for them to be able to know where he was and how he ended up there. But then one morning there it was, right in the GEDmatch database. And in the end, it was his birth mother's cousin that was able to verify the family connection. So who is Terry Deggs? Nathaniel Terrence Deggs was born in Baltimore, Maryland on December 31st of 1949. And he was a second child of a teenage mother who would end up having 12 kids all together. 12 kids. Um, It was at some point during his years, though, that he was placed in a foster home. But luckily for him, this was a very good foster home. They treated him well, and he actually became very attached to the mother of the family. At a certain point, the Deggs family, that is the, the last name of the foster family, they decided that they were going to move up to New York. And it was either the courts or his biological mother, I'm not sure which, but they allowed Terry to go with them. So most of Terry's coming of age years and early adult years actually were spent in the Bronx. And he did take on the last name of Deggs. And the years go by and he grows up, but he does kind of keep in touch with his biological family down in Maryland. Um, there, It's not too much of a, of a close relationship from what I could tell, but he, he is in contact with some of his siblings. And he, we find out also that one of his biological sisters did go up to New York at one point to visit him. And she also saw that he had been working as a security guard at a bank. Now, sadly, in 1984, Mrs. Deggs, his foster mother, she passes away. And Terry takes this very, very hard. So, so hard, in fact, that shortly after that, he just up and he leaves town. He just, he just gets out of Dodge. But he doesn't actually go back down to Maryland, which is what I would think that he would do. He, he doesn't, I guess, is not interested in reunited completely with his biological family. Um, and it's not known what happens to him over the next year or so, but... In October of 1985, a dentist who owns an orchard about a half an hour outside of Seattle finds a starving man on his property squatting in a rundown shed. So somehow or another, he makes it all the way across the country from New York, from like the eastern part of New York, to all the way over to Seattle, to Seattle, Washington. Unfortunately, from the state he was in, according to this dentist, it's, it was not a good trip that he had. Um, clearly, he was hard on his luck, and he was in really bad shape. He was practically starving, we're told. And unfortunately, I never found out what the dentist's name was. I was not able to find it. So we just call him the dentist. Now, the dentist decides he's not going to try to toss Terry off the property, but instead he's just going to bring him home to his own house, and he's going to feed him, and he's going to invite him to stay as long as he needs in that shed if he wants to. And Terry doesn't introduce himself as Terry. He introduces himself as Jerry. So we'll call him Jerry for now. But he does tell the truth about where he comes from. He does tell the dentist that he's coming from, that he came from New York at some point, and he used to be a security guard. And he says at one point there was a robbery in the bank that he worked at, and he got hit on the head really, really hard. So now Jerry is staying in this shed on this private property, and he stays there for for quite some time, because I just told you that he was discovered by the dentist in 1985. So the dentist does, he puts them to work. They have like a back and forth relationship, right? He says, you do some stuff on the property, you do some landscaping for me, some general fixing up, and then you can stay on my property. So he actually gets really close to the family, though. He starts spending time with the dentist and his family. He cooks dinners for them from time to time. And the dentist will actually even ask him to babysit. 
And at certain points, the dentist will also fix his teeth. So it's such a sweet story. This is such a sweet story, I think. What would you do if you had someone wandering homeless man just show up on your property squatting on one of your outbuildings? This could definitely have gone south and been a different kind of episode, right? How many true crime stories do we hear about someone who shows up as says they're down on their luck and the homeowner says, let's take him in, let's help him. And then things go really, really bad, really, really quickly. Well, it's I think it's just a really nice thing to see a situation like this, where this man forms a relationship with a homeless man and even comes to trust him enough to babysit his own children. But now after a while, the dentist decides that he's going to move off the property, even though it's a family lot. So he's not selling it off, but he's just going to rent it out. But then when he shows the house to a prospective tenant, he tells them, listen, we got a guy. He's living in the shed in the back of the property, but he's cool. He comes with the rental, so you can't kick him out. And it works. So Jerry ends up living in that shed for the next 30 years. 30 years, guys. And the tenants, every time that they're interviewed, whenever they get a, he gets a new prospective tenant, all they ever say is, Okay, sure, no problem. There's a guy on the land. All right. Now, it's said that he hardly ever left the property, let alone the shed. So he's like living all by himself most of the time, but at least he does get some kind of human interaction with the people that live there throughout the years and the dentist, of course. He's living in this shed on this apple orchard over in Washington. And I wonder whatever happened with his family. Like, clearly they had no clue, right? By the time he got all the way out west, there was no way for them to be able to find him if he didn't want to find them. And then at a certain point, do you think maybe he wanted to find them, but maybe he thought that he was just a lost cause at that point? I wonder if he had bad relationships that he, and that's why he left after his mom had passed, after his foster mom had passed, because maybe he felt there was nothing around to stay for. I don't know. This is all speculation. I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud. Well, we hear from one of the tenants that that lived there in the 90s. His name was James Prater, and he rented the house in 1996, so he can tell us some of the main stuff. He says he didn't interact with Jerry very much, but they did get along pretty well. When Jerry did leave the shed, he would like go do some yard working stuff for the dentist, or he would just you know wander around the orchard. He would take in the nature. He would eat the fruit from the orchard as part of his main sustenance. But doesn't that sound like the life? Jeez, I wish... I mean, at least that sounds like a great vacation. I would definitely be down with hanging out in a shed and an orchard, especially out in Washington. Now, I've never been to Seattle, but I did uh, spend some time growing up in Spokane in Washington, and I know it's gorgeous out there. It's just, and it's definitely a far cry from Bronx, New York. So, I mean, it sounds to me like it doesn't have a pretty, pretty bad life on the outset. However, the downside is there's no phone. There's no podcasts. There's no podcasts out there. There's no electricity. There's no running water. There's, so there's no shower. There's no toilet. So that's clearly a problem in this lifestyle. Um, I would definitely have a problem with that. So if we can get some plumbing in the shed, then I'm down. Now, once the roof on top of the shed caught fire and the fire department had to come out to put it out and they told him, listen, you cannot have a wood stove in here anymore. It's not safe. So James Prater gives him an electric skillet for cooking his food, and he also gives him like a small space heater. And then they just ran an extension cord from the main house out to the shed for him. And he even brought Jerry Christmas dinner that year while he was still renting that house. And Prater, Prater characterizes Jerry as kind of slow. 
So this kind of makes me wonder if that hit on the head that he said that he had when he was working as a security guard at the bank, maybe that wasn't just like a hit on the head. Maybe it was like a severe injury that he sustained. Maybe there's some kind of long-term, like, you know, uh, traumatic brain injury that we have here in Jerry. Yeah. Well, there were times when he would be out walking on the highway near the property or, you know, throughout the park looking like he was loitering. And so the local police, they would stop and they would talk with him. And they would write up reports about their interactions with him, but they never had any actual reason to take him in. So he was never actually charged with anything, even though that they did have his name in their in their records. So this is just another way to show, like, this, he's a nice guy. He might have issues feeling like he can't take care of himself in the, you know, civilized society, if you want to call it that. Maybe he wasn't able to hold a full-time job anymore. But at the same time, it sounds like he had a pretty nice life the way that he decided he wanted to live it. So we do have some questions here, and some of them might be answered one day. Maybe some of them won't be. Their answers maybe not for us to even know. Um, but, you know, did, I, I'm just curious, did he get paid with actual money? Um, did he take that money and he, did he go shopping for himself? Or did the tenants, did they help him out and they, did they do the shopping for him? Or was the dentist just paying him with food? Um you know, did they, did the dentist keep coming by to hang out with him or did they just kind of like see each other in passing? Um, did he ever get lonely? I wonder, I hope that really is not the case. I hope that this was more of a, a chosen lifestyle that he had. Um, it, did he, was he lonely for his family, for either family, for the foster family or the biological family? And did he ever think that he wanted to get back there? Like we said before, like it had to be him that tried to seek out his his family back east in order to have that kind of reunion because there's clearly no way that they would ever have known where he was and how they were going to find him. So many questions, right? And this is just one person's life. Just one person's life. It's just amazing to me how many different ways there are to live a life. Now, of course, this is all speculation because we have limited information about him and he was such an isolated person throughout all those last you know, the second half, literally like second half of his life for almost 30 years. But I wonder if, if he did have a traumatic brain injury from that, that robbery out in New York, did he have trouble living on his own? Did he have trouble, you know, fending for himself? And so when his, when his mom died, maybe he just decided that he needed to go somewhere where he could just be on his own. Maybe he started out as homeless in the Bronx and just somehow eventually hitchhiking, who knows what, maybe maybe that is how he ended up all the way out west. We'll never really know unless some somehow, some where someone comes across his story and says, I know that man, and tells his part of the story, or she tells their part of the story of having known him during that time bet between 1984 and 1985. But uh, I think it's a pretty long shot. There's a lot of... A lot of different ways th his life could have gone. What if he came across too many bad people on on his journey out west? And what if the dentist wasn't a nice dentist, you know? And I'm sure not all of his stories were great stories. I'm sure that he had a lot of pain in his life. But I do like to think that there were times when he did find joy, when he did have contentment in the life that he had when he was out there in Washington and I just hope that he was able to find peace before he died. And that is the case of the Mill Creek Shed Man. 
Whew, so there we have it. Uh, that is um, our first, not only our first bonus, but also our first John or Jane Doe that did not have any horrible, tragic, vicious, nasty crime perpetrated against them. From the looks of it, Jerry or Terry had a pretty um, peaceful death from what we could tell, although he had been down, he had been passed for at least a year by the time he was found. In any case, let me know what you think, if these are the kinds of cases that I should put into the regular um, schedule. Not sure how much information I'll be able to find on cases like this, only because if it's not an interesting story, you're not going to get a lot of information in the media about it. But um, I will definitely do my darndest to find it. In the meantime, find me on social media at The Ties to Find. My uh, website will definitely have a few photographs um, of T Jerry Terry. <laughs> and um, where he lived, and then also, of course, the script and the sources. And until then, um, please rate, review, and follow, and I will see you next week. Bye.